2: You would be shocked by how many people I spoke to. And when I told them I was writing about Sylvia Plath, the first thing they mentioned was the manner in which she died. And I felt like those details had almost superseded her, her writing. So it was this sense of mission, I guess, that, that kind of
3: sparked the, the flame. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas.
4: And I'm your other host, Ramon
3: Alon. Ramon, I am so excited to hear your conversation with Sylvia Plath biographer, Heather Clark, whose voice we just heard. But before we get to that, in our last episode, Isaac, you and I set some creative New Year resolutions, and I need to know, how are yours doing? Are they in tatters, or are you acing them?
4: I appreciate you holding me accountable june um so my husband very kindly walked me through how to make a bullet journal amazing that particular notebook and i are sort of trying to get to know one another right now <laughs> you know it's only like it's only a few days into the new sure. year but so far so good and i do feel more organized and i feel sort of you know more smug about myself <laughs> too and i've been listening to mozart some Mozart that I didn't know before this year. So that's not quite in the spirit of discovering brand new music, but it's new to me. What about you? Have you been reading before bed?
3: I have not. I've <laughs> been distracting myself with amusing audio entertainments instead. I think you and Isaac were just a little bit too convincing in your don't beat yourself up if you don't make your goal every single day reassurances. You were you were set me up for failure, uh, but I forgive you. <laughs> So you spoke with guest Heather Clark about Red Comet, the book she published at the end of last year. What's it about?
4: Red Comet is a comprehensive, massive biography of the American poet Sylvia Plath, who died in 1963, when she was only 30 years old. It's a very serious and rigorous account of Plath's life. But it's also a book that is engaged in a critique of the poet's work and the perceptions and misperceptions about that body of work.
3: Um, I'm curious how reading this biography changed your view of Sylvia Plath. What was your relationship to Plath before reading the book and then afterward?
4: You know, like so many bookish teens, I had a Sylvia Plath phase. Compulsory. You know, in my junior and senior years of high school, I read The Collected Poems, I read the letters that she wrote to her mother. I read Linda Wagner-Martin's biography. And then eventually I read Janet Malcolm's sort of cerebral metabiography, which is called The Silent Woman, which was published, I think, when I was 17. So mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine I understood a word of it. My interest in the poet lasted at least until I was in college, because I remember being excited when Ted Hughes published a book of poems about Plath, who had been his wife. And that was in 1998. <laughs> so... I do or did anyway think of Plath as something from my youth and therefore maybe something that's sort of fundamentally for young people, the way I think about Salinger or Vonnegut. But I don't think that's right. And I think Clark's biography argues otherwise and in some ways seems designed to challenge my misperception that Sylvia Plath is sort of interesting only if you're sort of full of the passion and fire of youth.
3: Yeah, Before we get to the interview, I also want to mention that Slate Plus members will hear a little something extra from your conversation. Can you tell us what they'll hear?
4: One of the things I really wanted to ask Heather about was the emotion
3: Mm.
4: around a big book like this, what it feels like to assume this particular responsibility, and how do you move on after that work is done. And I really loved her answers about this. If this interview doesn't make you want to tackle like A project that seems a little too ambitious and a little too big for you, then I don't know what
3: would. (laughs) Listeners, if you are not yet a member of Slate Plus, what are you waiting for? You can get two weeks free right now. Just go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's hear Roman's conversation with Heather Clark.
1: This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft in the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options.
4: biographical material about Sylvia Plath. You know, Ted Hughes oversaw the publication of her journals. Her mother published her letters. There was a second publication of her letters. There's a biography by Linda Wagner Martin. There's a biography by Anne Stevenson that's sort of controversial. Yes. You know, there's enough biography (laughs) that Janet Malcolm was able to publish a sort of biography (laughs) of the biographies. Yes. So what was it that made you want to attempt your own full-scale biography? What was missing In our, in all of those pieces about Sylvia Plath, what was missing?
2: Well, I felt that there wasn't an in-depth, critical, serious, scholarly um, biography of Plath, despite the plethora of biographies that you just mentioned. Most of them maxed out around 300, 400 pages, which is fine, right? I'm not saying that's a bad length for a biography, but I just I felt like she was one of the most important American women writers, and I wanted to give her that that space on the bookshelf, mm. you know, that we often reserve for men, quite mm-hmm. frankly. Mm-hmm. And uh, someone who really inspired me was Hermione Lee, mm-hmm. and her big biographies of women, particularly Virginia Woolf, and and Lee's sense that women whose Lives involved mental illness and self harm and suicide uh, were often treated as psychological victims, quote unquote, first and professional writers second. Um, that that really inspired me. That idea to try to treat Plath as as uh, as Lee says as a professional writer first. And I, I did feel that she had been pathologized in mm-hmm. some of these biographies and that that her legacy had been diminished and that she'd been kind of shortchanged by that and. You would be shocked by how many people I I spoke to, and when I told them I was writing about Sylvia Plath, the first thing they they mentioned was the manner in which she died, mm-hmm. and I felt like those details had almost superseded her her writing, uh, and and that was a bit of a travesty mm-hmm. <laughs> to mm-hmm. me. So, uh so it was this sense of. Mission, I guess that that kind of sparked the the flame. And of course, I had written a book on Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, an academic book, mm-hmm. with an audience of about fifty people. You know <laughs> that that sort of thing, print run of seven hundred. But but it did give me the confidence to mm-hmm. to feel like okay, I can undertake this project because I know where the um, the archival collections are. I have good relationships with the archivists, et cetera, et cetera. And and also, I should mention. Uh, a, a big factor in deciding to go through with this is is the permission situation, right? Yeah. I think a lot of those biographers were um, you know, a bit hamstrung by the difficulty they had in securing permissions to quote plus work. And and it's a different it's a different situation now. So So um,
4: what can you actually tell me what changed in the stewardship of the estate?
2: So for many years, the estate was overseen by Olwen Hughes, Ted Hughes' sister, and, uh, and, and they sort of famously, Owen Hughes and Sylvia Plath famously did not get along very well. And so, uh, for, for example, Anne Stevenson's biography um, is, is almost a work of co-authorship between Anne Stevenson and Olwen Hughes, and that biography was very controversial because Plath didn't come off very well. And so, uh, anyway, that that ended, and now Frida Hughes is uh, is the one who owns the Plath estate, and all queries go go to her.
4: So, I want to actually ask you about the tension between um, academic scholarship and popular writing. So, you mentioned Hermione Lee before, and she's someone who is she's the perfect example, I think, where the the biographies that she produces are so rigorous. And thoughtful, but therefore a general audience. And Red Comet, as you say, is not a work of scholar. It is a work of scholarship, but it's not it's not an academic work. Right. It is a popular work. So what's the difference yeah. between those two things?
2: This is something I thought about all the time as I was writing, because I I always felt the challenge of keeping people's attention on the page, mm-hmm. right? And but at the same time. Trying to be as rigorous as I could and as accurate as I could with with the facts and with the chronology, and that's why I have a million endnotes. <laughs> <laughs> I have two hundred pages of endnotes, but I felt like the the history of Plath biography was so fraught, mm-hmm. right? That if I was going to do this, I needed to <laughs> give people the evidence on. Every, you know, at the end of every other sentence, where yeah. I got this material, yeah. so that you can turn back, you can see exactly which letter, which day, mm-hmm. which interview. Um, because I read a lot of biographies, and I and I don't get that often, and I'm all. I, sometimes I'm left wondering, where did this come from, right? Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. So I just, I really wanted to cover all my bases with with those end notes, and I guess that's where the scholarly training comes in for me. But I also wanted to write a different kind of book. I wanted to spread my wings a little bit and I wanted to hopefully, um, propel the narrative, right. Right. And, Mm. and, and tell a story, a story that I thought was important. So, but yeah, I was always trying to negotiate that issue of who am I writing this for? Um, who's the readership going to be? It's a different readership than my previous books. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, but I felt like I had sort of paid my dues within the academy. <laughs> <And then> I <laughs> yes. could I could your, write something your, more creative. Yes, your
4: credentials are not <laughs> are not in doubt. But it's true that especially in the early pages of the book before I mean, there's a lot of difficulty in Platt's life. It's a real life, so you're reading about highs and lows, but in the early sections that sort of cover her youth through her undergraduate years, the story has almost a novelistic momentum. It's almost like you're just sort of reading a story about a girl that someone invented and having, mm. you know, travail- romantic travails and her personal ambition. And it's so, it's it's much more entertaining than I think the bookstore browser seeing the thousand page heft <laughs> of it might suspect. So you mentioned, you know, it is a big work.
2: Yeah.
4: Full of end notes. I'm so yeah. curious about how long the process of working on this book was?
2: Well, I signed the contract in January 2012. So Mm. (laughs) I had been working on it a bit before that, you know, I had written up a a proposal with a couple chapters. So I don't know, I'd written about maybe 100 pages or so, even before I got the contract. But yeah, I mean, it was a long, it was a long journey for sure. Uh, I actually, Resigned my tenured position when I got the contract. I was um, teaching at Marlborough College in Vermont, and it was a teaching intensive college. And I, you know, I was teaching like a five-five load, and it, it was. I just knew I would never write another word <laughs> if mm-hmm. I stayed. I knew I I had to um, make a move. So I was able to work on the book more or less full time um, for the past seven years or so. Mm-hmm. Well, full-time, I had two children. That was, <laughs> my, I gave birth to my son three years in, I think it was. Um, and I, my daughter was three when I started it. So that was just a, an enormous challenge through the whole thing, mm. balancing mm. career and and motherhood. And uh, Plath was a real inspiration there.
4: Yeah, I, I was just going to say, what a funny resonance with your subject herself.
2: Yeah, you know, I would have these meta moments where I'm a mother with two young children writing about a mother with two young children trying to find time to write. And uh, and that was something that I I just intuitively understood about Sylvia Plath. I felt like that was a a real connection that I felt with her. But that was that was a huge challenge. Mm. But I also wanted to, to prove that it could be done. I mean, I've had people email me. Women say that they they want to embark upon a big biography, but they have young children and they don't know if it's possible. And I just, it is possible. Um, it is, hmm. but it wasn't it wasn't easy. I would say.
4: <laughs> so, you had a previous scholarly work about Plath and her husband Ted Hughes. So you had the particular advantage of knowing where archives were, knowing who controlled access to those archives. And it's so funny to me that biography turns out to be a bit like a detective hunt, right? Like that's essentially the work. For this book, you were able to see material that none of Plath's other biographers had seen, including a, a portion of her correspondence with her psychiatrist from the 1960s. Can you tell me how you got access to that material, how you discovered that material?
2: Yeah, I mean so Harriet Rosenstein was a, a researcher who started a plath biography in the nineteen seventies, early nineteen seventies, and she interviewed dozens and dozens of people who had known Plath, um, who had treated Plath um medically. I mean she interviewed Plath's father's colleagues. I mean, she she was really an astute researcher. So that sat sort of untouched for 40 50 years she never she never published her plath biography and she never finished it so she sold that to emory university and that was opened to researchers um pretty recently and i was one of the first people you know i was (laughs) ready to pounce right as soon as i got the green light um there were there were a few you know about three or four of us who were right there. And uh, so we were the first to see all of that. And um, that, that was the biggest collection of new material. But also, you know, Ted Hughes, he, uh, his archives ended up at Emory in the British Library in the early 2000s. And I thought there was still a lot there to be mined. Mm-hmm. I did interview some people who hadn't been interviewed in the past. And, you know, a lot of the stuff I quote in the book, it's actually been in the archives, for mm-hmm. years and years mm-hmm. and years, but it's just that for whatever reason, previous biographers, either they didn't have the, the space to quote in detail from it. Um, I'm thinking about Plath's Adolescent Diaries, for example. They're all unpublished, but her teenage and childhood diaries are a rich source of information. Her, um, her calendars, her daily calendars, um, which are much more, uh, they ground you in her daily life much more than her, her published journals do. And and I learned a lot from those mm. and, of course, all of the unpublished manuscripts. I mean, there's a ton of Plath's writing that hasn't been published. You would mm. be really shocked <laughs> by mm-hmm. how much it's all there. So it's not like I discovered a lot of this stuff, but it just – I feel like it hadn't really been taken advantage of in a sen- <laughs> in a biographical mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. And I I owe a lot to Knopf for letting me write this behemoth, right, for letting <laughs> me write this big book. I knew I was pushing the limits of a trade press, but – um but again there was just that sense I had that she she deserved it I mean Mm -hmm. I just she was I feel like sometimes as women were encouraged to uh to take up less space in the world whether Mm -hmm. that's physically or intellectually and she was someone who wanted to take up space in the world Mm -hmm. she just had this enormous appetite and hunger for life and I wanted to kind of give her the opportunity to take up that space just on the bookshelf even. if. So that was the sense of mission. And my editor, Deb Garrison, was so supportive um, of, of that and, and the length. And, although we did cut quite a bit, I have to say. <laughs> so so we worked on that.
4: <laughs> one thing I'm curious about, like as a layperson, is when we talk about archives and when we talk about, you mentioned a, a previous biographer who was never able to complete her project. Was sitting on this primary research that she had done, and then she owns that material. She it's, it's her work. She sells it to an institution, an institution like a university or a private library. Is it the case that sometimes the estate has dictated that it can't be open for a few years, or that it, you know, not all researchers can have access to it? Sort of, how does that work logistically?
2: Yes, it, it that can be the case. Uh, for example. You know, Ted Hughes, for a long time, there were certain journals that he didn't want people to look at. And, um, you know, he he controlled a lot of what was able to get seen. Um, And so, yeah, estates can put all kinds of conditions on things. I think, you know, even now, you, you have to contact the Hughes estate if you go to Emory, or the British Library it, to make copies of anything. And I believe the same is true for the Plath estate at the Lilly Library.
4: It's just funny because I think if it's maybe it doesn't occur to people. Like You think it's simply the detective hunt of trying to track down where Sylvia Plath's agenda from 1961 might have ended up, but then to discover that there are rules about whether or not you can even open those pages and whether you can take yeah. a picture of them. You know. Oh,
2: absolutely, yeah. You have to get permission to photograph from the estates. And not at Smith College, though, at Sylvia Plath's archive at Smith College, because they, I believe they negotiated, you know, when they bought the archive for free and open access. So, mm-hmm. so archives can negotiate for that as well. Mm-hmm. When they buy collections.
4: So you touched on this, actually, one of the first things you said confirmed one of my questions about the book, which is that this is a biography with an agenda, you know? And that agenda is maybe, it's to dispel a popular image of Plath, which, as you point out, in the biography itself, there is a sort of contradictory popular image of Plath, one that she was sort of like a delicate flower who was a victim of a deeply you know sexist society having been born into deeply sexist society and then sort of the inverse is that she was this kind of death obsessed half crazy you know mad woman but my I guess my bigger question is does biography always begin with an agenda with a thesis and whether you began this work I mean you already had a previous understanding of this woman's work as a scholar but did you begin with that thesis or did the research kind of show you what that thesis was
2: I, I guess I did begin with that thesis, probably because of my academic training and just been drilled into my head that <laughs> you need a thesis, um, and I drill into my students' heads now. But uh, but I don't I don't necessarily believe that's the case. And, and I, as I was saying, I had this this sense of almost injustice or frankly anger um, just about the ways in which. She had become a writer whose name was often synonymous with madness and tragedy. and I, And I just felt like she's just so brilliant and witty and cerebral and uh, and ironic. and and a lot of that was getting lost in the popular imagination. so um, so I started with that sense of mission, but I certainly don't think it's something that everyone um, starts with. And I, I actually, through the course of the research, I became, I guess, a more firm believer in my own thesis <laughs> because uh, even I would have these moments, and my editor would write in the margin, "Don't fall into the Plath trap." Hmm. Um, like I would have these moments where I, I would even say something like, "I, I really tried not to use words like obsessive or hmm. you know, any anything like that uh, that that pathologized her." I really tried to watch my my language to the level of individual words, but every once in a while something would slip through and, and my editor would catch it. And, um, and I guess I had even started thinking maybe she was more fragile than, than I came to discover she was. Mm. She, at the end, by the end of the book to me, she seemed so strong. Um, she was well, strong in the sense that she had such a clear vision of her vocation mm. and she had such a strong will and she She wanted to fulfill her calling Mm. and nothing kind of could deviate her from from fulfilling that literary calling. And I was so impressed by that. And of course, when when severe depression struck, it was a different story. Right. When when she became ill. But, you know, in her day to day life, um, just this amazing sense of fortitude and strength that really came across
3: to me. Yeah. As I Mm. researched her. We'll be back with more of Roman's conversation with biographer Heather Clark.
1: Anatomy of an ad.
0: Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect.
1: Define an opportunity.
0: Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S., like I am now.
1: Identify a problem.
0: Creating an audio ad is time consuming
3: One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems. Whether it's a specific challenge about your work or a big question about inspiration and discipline or, you know, how to cut down a 1600-page manuscript, anything at all, send them to us at workingslate.com at or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's return to Roman's conversation with Heather Clark.
4: You also have spoken to me about this work as a work of critical biography, and that was one of the things that I found most surprising, is that it's looking at the circumstances and the stuff of Platt's life, but it's using a sort of very penetrating critical eye. And, for example, one of the things that it does that I think is very unusual in the context of all of this writing about Plath is engaged very seriously with her juvenilia. And I'm really curious about why you chose to take her youthful short stories and poetry this seriously. And I'm, you know, you mentioned in the book that other biographers have neglected to do that. What do you think the previous scholarship on Plath missed by discounting that early work?
2: No, I was writing a biography of a great American writer and the question that I always had in the back of my mind which kind of was my north star was how did Sylvia Plath become the writer that she became and when I started to get overwhelmed by all the archival (laughs) documents thousands and thousands that is the question that I would come back to and so looking at her juvenilia uh, was to me a kind of archaeology because that helped me answer the question, how did she get to where she she got to? And and what was she reading as a child? And what was what kind of poems was she writing? And, you know, she had an almost perfect ear as a child. And I wanted people to understand that, that she she could write in perfect iambic tetrameter, whatever it was, she had such a strong sense of meter from a very, very young age. And she was even revising her work by age eight or nine. Mm. So she had a a real gift, a real lyrical gift. And this calling that she had, uh, I think she, she discovered it at a very young age. And she sort of never looked back. And I guess I wanted readers to to understand just how strong that calling was and how early it was that it, it grabbed her. Mm-hmm. And because there's this sense in other biographies that she was only writing to please other people, you know, to get love from her f- her mother, or, um, her, her professors, her teachers. And I, and I sort of thought that Short changed her own sense of ambition and determination and, <laughs> and the pleasure that she got out of writing, the self-satisfaction. So I think going into her juvenilia in, in detail was a way for me to show and not tell,
5: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um,
2: if you if you will, and and to show also how influenced she was by modernist poets like Yeats and and Eliot, mm-hmm. um, and you know how how carefully she read them and engaged with their work once she was in high school.
4: One of the most striking kind of arguments in this book, to me anyway, with the caveat that I am not as well versed in any of the criticism of Plath as you would be, is that you argue that the work that she completed at the end of her life, which I think is sort of understood to have been like the pinnacle of her accomplishment, shouldn't necessarily be understood as confessional. That it should be understood that she was a poet in full possession of performance and of irony, and that she knew exactly what she was doing, and that if it, if a poem like Daddy seemed to seemed to lay bare her, she was doing that on purpose, and that she was sort of playing with us. Do you think that that is where the scholarship views her now, or is that something that you feel like is needs to be better understood?
2: I think that most. Plath scholars you know people who write about Plath for a living um, have understood this about Plath for quite a few years and but my sense is that it just hasn't really trickled (laughs) down into the popular perception of Plath that she was this incredibly ironic writer and a very literary and elusive writer you know that these weren't just impulsive cries from the heart Um, a poem like Elm it went through 15 drafts and that yes she is using autobiography absolutely but sort of like Emily Dickinson she's telling the truth but she's telling it slant she uses surrealism she uses myth Um, she's she's doing something very different I think than just laying straight autobiography on the page and I think what she's doing is actually much more interesting than mm-hmm. than what this term "quote unquote" confessional implies. Um, mm-hmm. I just I think that we need to expand our our understanding in that mm-hmm. in that sense. Yeah.
4: So criticism, though, is like a subjective act. And if we had somebody who was a true believer in sort of the confessional mode, they would be able to be here and arm wrestle with you. But it occurred to me that maybe sort of all of biography is similarly subjective because you, Heather Clark, are in this book interpreting, extrapolating absolutely everything. So, for example, there's a lot of correspondence between Plath and her mother, Aurelia Plath. um, And that was published in previous iterations. And it seems to show a kind of sunny affection between daughter and mother that feels really far from maybe our sense of how the poet actually felt about her mother. And I was really struck by your argument that both mother and daughter are conspirators in this, (laughs) that Mm. it has to do with sort of the conventions of behavior at the time. And it's not about a woman who hated her mother or a mother who was controlling her daughter. It was just about this is how mothers and daughters spoke to one another.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I talked to a lot of Plath's friends from Wellesley, and this was something that kept coming up, um, the complicated nature of their relationship, and mm-hmm. they felt very aggrieved that it had been portrayed in such a black and white way in previous biographies, and I guess I, I did feel that it was this sort of arms race between them, <laughs> that neither one of them wanted to make the other worry Um Feel badly. You know, Aurelia Plath suffered from all kinds of um, ulcer-related illnesses throughout her life, and she had stomach surgeries. And at the time, ulcers were thought to be caused by stress. And so I think that was a part of the reason Sylvia often gave her mother this very sunny version of things that were going on in her life, which, which Sylvia herself termed the gay side. You know, she told others, "Oh, I gave my mother the gay side." Um, she didn't want to give her the side that was not so gay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think because again, she didn't want to worry her. She had lost one parent, and uh, I don't think she wanted to be responsible for putting her mother in the hospital again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this this also related illness was a huge issue in in Aurelia's life and Sylvia's life too. So yeah, I think they were often just. Trying to give each other the best version of of their lives. Um, it was a complicated mother daughter relationship for sure, and uh, but I guess I wanted to sort of dive deeper into the nuance of it.
4: Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned like the Plath estate, the Hughes estate have some, you know, they're in a position of a little bit of authority over you and the work. Mm-hmm. Did you feel? Any responsibility to Frida Hughes, who is the poet's surviving heir, um, and do you know if she has read the book?
2: Uh, yes, yeah, she. I know that she has read the book, and and she really likes the book. And um, I, I definitely felt like I needed to keep that awareness with me as I wrote the book. That that this isn't something that happened a hundred years ago. There are still living family members. The, who, um, you know, will read the book. And I, I, I it, it was something that was in the back of my mind. Did it affect the way I wrote? No, but there were certain things that I didn't put in the book because I was a, you know, I was mindful of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, there were things that I left out. So I suppose, yeah, it it was, it was there.
4: Yeah. One of the things that I was really, really struck by is the level of concrete detail you fold into the book to not even to support any particular argument, simply to establish a command, I think, over the material. So when you talk about Plath spending a lazy day on the beach, you're able to say that she was savoring peaches and cherries because Mm -hmm. you were looking at the long archive that she left behind her. So I'm curious about why that kind of detail felt important to you. And I'm also really curious what you think the someday biographers of Zadie Smith or Jessamyn Ward, like, what are they going to rely on to establish the texture of these people's lives?
2: I felt like I had to provide these concrete details. um, Well, as you say, to establish a kind of narrative authority, I guess to to convince the reader, look, I have read everything. (laughs) Um, I've done my best here and I'm I'm going to pick and choose what I think are are the most important parts of these letters or or these unpublished manuscripts or these interview transcripts and and give them to you. And I I mean, there's this constant sense of existential (laughs) dread, I think, if you're writing biography, uh, getting at truth with a capital T, right and and how do you how do you really know what happened? And this is why Ted Hughes always hated biographers and Owen Hughes too, and I get that. I'm, how, how dare they presume to know what Sylvia was like or what our lives together were, was like? How dare they? And so I had that voice in the back of my head too. How dare you right? and i I think putting the documentary material front and center um, helped with that especially with with Plath's own voice because this is really the first big biography that quotes Plath in large chunks large sections so i wanted to take advantage of that and center her voice and and give you a lot of of Sylvia Plath and uh, and maybe that would allow my narrative voice to take a back seat there so uh, and then the other the other thing you asked about, how will we write about Zadie Smith in the future? I think the digital archives will be preserved. Mm-hmm. And I know Salman Rushdie's digital archive is at Emory. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't quite know how that will happen because, of course, authors can just delete what they want to yeah. delete. And yeah. um, But I think emails probably will be available in some form for researchers. Uh, I don't quite believe that they will give the richness of letters yeah Yeah. Yeah. so that is that is an issue certainly
4: well Heather this was such an amazing conversation I'm so grateful to you for taking the time to talk to me and explain to me a little bit about the detective work of being a biographer (laughs) and I am very curious to see what you come up with next
2: thank you and thank you so much for having me on the show I really appreciate it
0: Raise your hand
1: if you are burnt out. If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine.
0: You are not alone. I'm Shirley Leung, host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbett, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say
5: More from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at tribecafilm.com/slowburn.
3: Hope to see you there. Let me just pause to say that I absolutely loved this interview. Ron, you asked just the exact questions that I was curious about, and she answered them. And I realize that sounds kind of catty on my part, which I don't intend in any way, shape or form. But I really imagine that after you've spent that much time on such a huge project that it would be hard to have any perspective whatsoever on it or to see it in any way clearly. But it seemed like she had just the right amount of distance from the book and her subject. It was really striking.
4: I agree. I found Heather to be such remarkable company. There are many smart people out there in the world, but not all of them are able to make conversation about their work, you know, to really speak to you who may not know anything about their particular area of expertise and leave you feeling like you've come away with something. She must be a remarkable teacher. It was so great to have this conversation because often I finish a book and I wish I could chat with the writer, but here I really had that particular chance.
3: That's amazing. There's something really powerful in her talk of wanting to give Sylvia Plath the space she deserves on the bookshelf. It's a great concept. And I mean, Plath died at 30. Her collected poetry only is about 300 pages. Her novel, The Bell Jar, is about 240 pages. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that poets typically do not take up a lot of literal shelf space. Um, But as the two of you discussed, the book is 1150 pages, 200 of which are end notes. So please tell me honestly, how did it feel to you? Too long, too short, just (laughs) right.
4: There's no question that this is a demanding book. It is very long. But as I said to Heather, it's sort of shockingly readable. The narrative has a real shape, and the story of an artist beginning and development is always interesting to me. So things can move pretty briskly at times, almost like a novel. But of course, it's not that. It's a work of deep scholarship that will yield to a reader who's curious about Plath or poetry or art and ambition. But that deep scholarship, I think, requires a certain kind of pacing, a certain kind of time, a certain kind of word count to accrue. So Heather is sort of like chastened, it seems, by the breadth of what she's written. But I think she's also very clear that a big argument demanded a big book, that a big talent demanded a big book.
3: Yeah. I love your line of questioning about the biographer as sort of detective. It's also fascinating to think about new original material becoming available from or about a person who died 57 years ago, or, you know, how things like a change of control of the writer's estate could transform what it was possible to say or quote from or kind of get by the estate. Um Heather Clark was convincing that writing a biography is way more than detection, which I absolutely accept. But the quest and the path to discovery really is still fascinating.
4: It was part of the principal interest in speaking to her, actually, was that yeah. sort of detective hunt aspect of it. A few years ago, I corresponded with a woman who had written a biography that's long out of print now of a writer that I love And this biographer asked me whether I would like her research the box of papers that she dissembled assembled as she wrote her own book. So right now in the closet in my office are childhood photos and an unpublished manuscript belonging to a pretty significant American novelist who died many years ago. It's a completely, utterly random place for this material to end up. But it does happen, clearly, and it probably happens more often than we think, There's a great essay that appeared at the Paris Review last winter, which talks about what happened when a a university in South Africa accidentally tossed out the personal library of the writer Nadine Gordimer. You never know where a clue might be, right? That like a great writer inside the cover of her Agatha Christie novel might have scrawled down something that turned out to be really fascinating or instructive about her practice as a writer. And in some ways, I think, the mission of someone like Heather Clark is to go out and sneak around and assemble those
3: clues. Absolutely. And I have to just really focus now because right now the only thing in my head is the question, who is the author whose manuscript is in Roman's closet? But uh, I shall attempt to soldier on. I, I, I can
4: tell you off the record later.
3: All right. I will I will pursue that insight later. Um, now, I know that, for myself at least, Sometimes, after I've read a big book, which is full of fascinating facts and insights, I kind of shock myself by the weird, small, sometimes kind of ridiculous detail that is the first thing that pops into my head when I later think of that book. So, if I said to you, Red Comet, The Short Life and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath, what's the first thing that comes to mind?
4: I do mention this detail in my conversation with Heather, But she describes at one point Sylvia at the beach feasting on grapes and cherries. Yeah. And there's such specificity to that that I find that so striking. That's meaningless, though, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's just a tiny detail that she probably recorded in her diary.
3: Yeah.
4: What emerges in these pages is Plath's very keen awareness of herself. She's really clear about her own ambition. She's really clear about her interest in sex, in politics, in everything. You know, she was voracious, and she seemed to know that she was extraordinary. And I really do love that about her. It's very different from the perception of um, mid-century femininity as sort of, like, fundamentally crushed mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. society.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: She doesn't seem like that to me at all.
3: That's really fascinating. I, one of the things that I can never read enough about is talent, Uh, Just the very concept of it, the self-awareness of it, um, maybe even a a false perception of it. Uh, So it sounds like I definitely need to read or listen to this book to kind of explore how that played out in Sylvia Plath's life. Um, I might be asking this of you because I thoroughly enjoyed Sometimes You Have to Lie, which is Leslie Brody's biography of Louise Fitzhugh a book that was your end-of-year recommendation on Slate's Outward podcast. So I want to know, are you a big reader of biographies? And if so, do you have any recommendations?
4: I am. I find them a very satisfying form when done well. Wayne Kestenbaum has a very zany and brief book about Andy Warhol that I think is great. Heather mentioned the biographer Hermione Lee, and I do love her book about Willa Cather, who's one of my favorite writers. Blake Bailey wrote beautiful biographies of Richard Yates and John Cheever and Charles Jackson. I loved all three, and I'm really excited about his forthcoming biography of Philip Roth. Biography can be stodgy in the wrong hands, but with a good writer, it's not unlike eavesdropping. (laughs) What could be more fun?
3: Absolutely nothing, except maybe listening to podcasts. (laughs) Listeners, if you have enjoyed this show please consider signing up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you can read all the articles that are published on Slate. And you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year, and you can get a free two-week trial right now at slate.com slash Working Plus.
4: Thanks to Heather Clark for being our guest this week, and as always, enormous thanks to our producer, Cameron Drews.
3: We'll be back next week for a conversation between Isaac Butler and writer Jonathan Leitham. Until then, get back to work.
1: Anatomy of an ad.
0: Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect.